Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. This morning, I reiterate what John has said in our welcome to our Together for Life. Uh, participants to our Together for Life, uh, mother-in-laws, future father-in-laws, uh, welcome to Dawson. We're so glad. We're so thankful for Together for Life and to the leadership, lay leadership, the leadership of, of Andy uh, Carty and others who come alongside of that great investment, not only in current marriages, but in future marriages. And what a wonderful legacy for this family of faith uh, throughout uh, the years of Together for Life. And so again, welcome, and we're glad that you're here. So I have... Uh, Want, want to, to look at Genesis chapter 11. I'm reminded of, of Sir Norman Foster, who is a British architect, who uh, once said that we as a culture build what we value. That we as a culture build what we value. We construct, in many ways, what we worship. You can see this in Egyptian pyramids. I mean, you don't have to be an archaeologist to be able to see that what the pyramids in encased and, and what they encapsulated were uh, the values of that culture and the beliefs of the ever life uh, that, they, that they held to. And even a little bit closer to home in our own culture, you can see the development of, of homes and the way that homes are, are centered around certain architectural features or the lack of them. I mean, you don't have to live in Mayberry to remember a time to where the front porch was, was a center part of the community. And so a, a lot of, you know, that had to do with not having air conditioning in the house and it pushed you outside. It pushed you to the front porch, but on those front porches, stories were told, community was uh, made. There was a sense of the sharing of stories, the sharing of values. The kids were playing in the yard. There was a sense in which we, we knew our neighbors and we gathered around the front porch celebrating what we valued, which was, was community. And, and a lot of its imperfections, no doubt, we're not given a, a sense of nostalgia of a past that really never even existed. But you fast forward to our culture and you look at what's replaced the front porch. And it is somewhat emblematic of what we value because now it's a lot of exceptions to that, even in our own Birmingham metro community. But a lot of homes replace the front porch with a two-car garage. And the only time of communities when you get home at the end of the day, you lift up the garage and before you go in to be shut in for the rest of the night, you go to your mailbox and you get your garbage bins. And if it happens to be a neighbor there in that three to five minutes, it's, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And most of us go back in, shut the garage, and there we are. Because we value in our culture. We value seclusion. We value privacy. We, we are a reflection of what we build. And that's not just true in the 21st century, but it is true in the final story in a series that we've entitled Genesis Act 1. As we come now to Genesis chapter 11, we build what we value. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1, we read, Now the whole earth had one language, and they had the same words. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, 
Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is really the culmination of the first 11 chapters, obviously, of the book of Genesis. This is the first section of the book of Genesis. There's going to be a shift where we move from this uh, wide-angle focus in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 to a more close-up focus as we focus on Abram and Sarai and the founding of the Israelites. We'll get to that later in our journey of faith here at Dawson. But I want you to see in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11 how the whole world had one language. They had one common speech. They migrate eastwardly. That doesn't sound mischievous. It doesn't sound sinful. But they are directional pointers in Genesis 1 through 11. And even past that, where the, uh, when people are going eastward, it's not a good outcome that occurs. Adam and Eve, they receive their eviction notice out of the Garden of Eden. They go eastwardly. Uh, Cain receives the mark and he wanders and he goes east. Even in Genesis chapter 13, we're going to see Abram and Lot. They come to this crossroads. Lot goes east, what is going to be Sodom and Gomorrah. And we understand that this is a pointer that when people are going to east, there is oftentimes a result that isn't far away from the pride and the preservation that marked this original building program. Now, what did they build? My in-laws, when Danielle and I got married, very quickly they ended up living in Toronto and so we would oftentimes, well, oftentimes, we went one time to Toronto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I preached three times, no telling what I'll say right now. So, but, uh, so we went to Toronto one time, and you could go up the CN Tower there, and it's this, this great tower at that time. It was the largest freestanding structure, whatever, whatever. But it is, oftentimes we, we read these passages, and we think CN Tower, we think Tower, and we really are far afield from what they're building. What, what did they build? Well, the Tower of Babel was what ancient Near Eastern scholars would say is a ziggurat, and a ziggurat wasn't known just in the Israelite religion, but it was in that ancient Near Eastern religions, and so it was this pyramid-like structure in some respects that had these steps that led to this altar and to the shrine. The Tower of Babel, Babel actually means the gates of God, so it gives us a little bit of a clue in the ancient Near Eastern world, when they would build a ziggurat, the idea was is that we can make our way to God and the gods can make their way to us. So there was a sense of this stairway up and the stairway down in their mind. And it is important for you to see that this is not a pure religious motivation. Their pride is what motivates them to do this. Pride is, the passage tells us, to make a name for themselves. They wanted to do things their way. They wanted to preserve their way. This is a religious motivation of being self-made, having a complete autonomy from God. Now, there is in our culture a need for healthy self-confidence. I mean, really, if you have a consultation with a surgeon and you're being scheduled for surgery a week later, you do not want that surgeon to say, hey, I'm so glad you came to me, but I'm just going to let you in on something here. I've actually never done this procedure before, but I've watched someone do this on YouTube several times, and I, I, think, I think we collectively, we can make it through this. I mean, I, I need a little bit more self-confidence in my surgeon. 
I, I don't mind flying. I don't have to be tranquilized to be at 35,000 feet. But I'm going to be honest. I don't put my feet down. I want to be with the pilots. I want to make sure that everything's okay when we're going through turbulence. And so when we're landing and it's tumultuous outside, there's a storm. I do not, and, and nor am I comforted when the pilot comes over and says, Hey, guys, I just want you to brace for landing. I've never landed in this bad of weather, but I think we can make it together. That, that's not comforting to me, nor to you. So there is a sense that self-confidence, self-esteem is healthy for your work, for your calling. It's healthy for what you're doing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But pride, on the other hand, what we discover is the motivation of what leads to them building the Tower of Babel. It is spiritually deadly. There's a medieval Jewish philosopher by the name of Spinoza who said that pride is thinking more highly of oneself than is just, out of love for oneself. Notice that again, that pride is thinking more highly of oneself than is just, out of love for oneself. C.S. Lewis would say this about pride, that the essential vice is pride. The utmost evil is pride. The complete anti-God state of mind is pride. This is the original sin of Satan. The prophet Isaiah, he peels back the motivations of that first sin of Satan. And notice the way in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, there are allusions to this Genesis 11 story when we talk about Satan's original motivations. This is the words of Satan through the prophet Isaiah. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So the sin of the Tower of Babel is, is in step with that original sin of Satan. There's a lot of, I will make myself. I will make a name for myself. We will make a name for ourselves. This is not a healthy self-esteem. This is not healthy self-respect. This is not healthy self-love. This is not you as a grandparent going to your five-year-old son or our grandson or granddaughter's t-ball game and seeing them getting a hit and just feeling you know, wow, that's great. That This is not what we're talking about right here. Rather, this is a group of people whose goal is to join God through human means. Rather, to replace God through their effort and to be in standing with God to do something to make a name for themselves. And it's important for you and I to understand that that original temptation is a temptation that all of us in this room face. All of us in this room, when before coming to be your pastor, lived in Jackson, Mississippi, all of our you know, field trips with the kids, oftentimes, not all of them, but a lot of them would go New Orleans way. And so prior to coming here, I remember chaperoning my son at that time, who was a third grader. We get in the buses and follow behind and we go to the Audubon Aquarium. You know it maybe from Atlanta or something similar or something in Chattanooga. And so we're there and there's the blowfish. There's the puffer fish. And all the kids are like, wow, you know, that, it's pretty cool. You, you've seen the blowfish. I mean, small, and then it has this elastic stomach. And so with air and with water, it just puffs up and puffs up to be able to prevent the predator from swallowing the fish. And more than that, even if there's a predator that comes to, to get the puffer fish or the blowfish, 
there is this toxic state that, that actually that pufferfish, as cute and cuddly as that pufferfish looks, has a, a toxic nature to itself that is 1,200 times more poisonous than cyanide. That cute, cuddly putter, uh, pufferfish, blowfish, has enough poison in itself to kill 30 adult humans. And there is a sense where we're all like that fish, that we blow ourselves up with this toxic nature of pride. We succumb to that original temptation of pride, and it is toxic. It is toxic in the home. It is toxic in the workplace. It is toxic in a church. There is a sense in which where we blow ourselves up to make a name for ourselves in the name of making a platform so people can see us and what we are doing as the Tower of Babel participants were doing. It is toxic, toxic, toxic. Now, there are a lot of you that are writing this off already. I can just look at you. I can just look at you and say, great story, Genesis chapter 11, but boy, aren't we glad. I mean, I'm, I'm not building towers, putting my name on the side of them. I mean, yeah, somehow I struggle with pride. We all struggle with pride, but this is far afield from my life. I, I mean, I see that. There's a temptation to cursorily read this story and move on with life. And this past week, Jonathan Edwards was very helpful. You, you know Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards 18th century Congregationalist pastor, really the greatest American theologian to ever live, Edwards writing in an essay that was a part of a larger book, some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England. The Puritans knew how to title books, did they not, right there? Some thoughts concerning. And so in that book, he has undetected spiritual pride, and this is what Edwards says. Pride is the main handle by which Satan has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and to hinder a work of God. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. And this is what Edwards does. I mean, it's almost as if Edwards, he could have been written, writing this in 2018 here. The, the relevance of his words as the spiritual physician who is diagnosing several ways that a pride emerges in my life, and in your life, in our life. He says that prideful people first are fault finders. That prideful people are first fault finders. You know how this goes, don't you? You know at times in your life that you are really good at seeing everyone else's faults while conveniently ignoring your own. Edward says that the eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart that he is not apt to be very busy judging others' hearts. When pride begins to reign in our heart, we are fault finders. Secondly, we are superficial. You know, our culture has commodified superficiality. Our, our culture has commodified being a superficial person in the name of building a platform. We live in a culture that is really dangerous where you all, all of us in this room can be marketing agents that have one client and that client is self. 
And we have a platform through our phones, a platform through our iPads, where we, through Instagram and Facebook, and all of these, none of these things are wrong. None of these things need to be demonized, but understand the unique time that you could have lived decades ago and not known many people outside of a 10-mile radius. And now you can feel that what you eat for lunch is deemed noteworthy by all of America. Don't think that that doesn't have some spiritual implications. We just jump on these things and say, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with this? And what's wrong? I mean, just, we, just, we just eat them and eat them. And we don't understand that how much of this breeds about in your life and in my life, a real robust superficiality. We just skim life and scan through things. So Edward says superficiality, fault finders, Third, he says that we're oftentimes defensive. All of us have been here in a work environment. All of us have been here in a school environment where pride begins to reign. We're often above correction. We're often in a, in a defensive posture where we're always justifying our thoughts. We're always defending our actions. And we come to a place where we are rarely willing to hear any constructive critique. Fourth, Edward says that we, when pride begins to reign, are desperate for attention. This is the thing about pride. Pride is always hungry and is never filled. Pride is always, always hungry and is never satiated. Pride is always saying, hey, I want more, I want more. We can't get enough respect. We can't get enough attention at home or work. Oftentimes in the midst of conversations, we're hijacking conversations to bring it back to our accomplishments, to our perspectives. We are desperate to be seen in the right light. So we obsess about our stuff and our image. We Do we have the right clothes? Do we have the right car? Do we have the right home? Do we have the right jobs? Do we have the right vacations? And we go on and on and on trying to impress the Joneses. And most of us don't even like the Joneses, but we are desperate. Desperate for that attention because pride is is ruling and it's reigning. And finally, we're neglectful of others, Edwards would say. That at a subconscious level, and I don't even think this is volitional in many of us, but when pride begins to reign, we consistently pass by and neglect those who in our mind do not contribute to the building of our own personal portfolio. So we oftentimes pass over those people who we don't think contribute to the building of our image. But simultaneously, this is the irony of it, we are so hungry For the validation from those that we have acknowledged as the powerful and the prestigious. So we can't get enough of their praise. We hunger for their validation while often missing the very people that Jesus would be among if he was here in 2018. The needy, the hurting, the lost, those who we feel as if cannot contribute to us. I'm going to tell you. I don't know how you hear this, but this knocked me in between the eyes this week. And I have the great privilege of, of, of preaching three times on Sunday morning. So if you think your toes have been stepped on, I cannot feel my toes now. There is not a person in this room 
who doesn't know the sound of building your own tower. All of us in this room know what it's like at times to be neglectful of others. All of us in this room know what it's like at times to be desperate for attention. All of us in this room know what it's like at times to be defensive. All of us in this room know what it's like to be fault finders. All of us in this room, we, we swim in the cultural current of superficiality. So there are none of us who are righteous. Not one of us. All of us know what it's like to feel the pull of that original temptation of Satan and the temptation of the Tower of Babel. So the question is, what hope do we have? What is the antidote to this toxic sin that so easily entangles every one of us in this room? And that's where this passage gets interesting. In Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 5, we read, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is, the, is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Verse 5, verse 7, it is a punchline. It is a Genesis 1 through 11 punchline that we are to see the humor in. There is irony here. The Lord had to stoop down to see the best of man's achievement. God had to come down to see the best that they as humans could build up. Babel's conceited, let's go up is answered by heaven's calm, let's go down. And it's important for you to see an essential perspective here. That while they are tempted to make a name for themselves, God stoops down and disperses them over the world. And it is judgment to disperse them, to confuse their language. But it is actually a part of his providential plan that was stated in Genesis 1, restated in Genesis 9-1 and Genesis 9-7. In Genesis 9-1, they come off the ark and God says to them, guess what? You have a purpose. You have a recommissioning to be fruitful, multiply, increase, and fill the earth. This is how I am going to make my name great. Then he comes back to it in chapter 9, verse 7. And he says, for those of you that are hard of hearing, for those of you who did not listen to me, I'm going to reiterate this. Be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth. And they say, uh-uh. Not for us. Pridefully, they want to preserve their way of life. They want to gather together lest they be dispersed. And God said, my will will be done whether you go along with it or whether I have to judge you and propel you from this place. And I think it's important for us to see so often we have small God theology. So often, God is sitting in, in our versions of our theology, waiting on the throne of heaven. Will they be obedient? Will they be obedient? God's over there, uh, you know, uh, biting his fingernails, waiting to see what we're going to do. As if 
His will is dependent upon our obedience. That God has a plan that is larger than even our life. I hope we all know that. And that God uses even the charred pieces of our sinful decisions with all of those consequences to build this beautiful mosaic called His will, His plan, and that His will and His plan will not be thwarted. I read this, God stoops down. I read this, God descends. And it's hard for me not to hear in Genesis chapter 11, just foreshadowing of what the purpose of Palm Sunday was and what we're celebrating today. You see, that original Palm Sunday, long before Macy Day's Thanksgiving parades, long before Rose Bowl parades, they would have ticker tape parades in the Greco-Roman world. And so the conquering kings would come back home and they would have all of their soldiers behind them to to show the citizens, look at our might. They would have the conquered king in chains behind the chariot, oftentimes in, in a very heinous display of strength. They might have a prince's head that was actually sliced off, impaled on a stake for all of the citizens to gawk at. They knew parades then. And so you would have at the centerpiece of that parade, the victorious king leading forth. And he would be on this impressive jewel-clad stallion with all of the regality. No expense whatsoever wasn't expended and, and expended to be able to show all of the people there, look at our might, look at our victory, look how great we are, what a name we've made for ourselves. And here comes the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That original Palm Sunday. And he comes not on this jewel-clad stallion, but he comes on a lowly donkey. There is no regality regality to this whatsoever, but rather there was humility to this picture here because we discover that the disciples' tattered clothes would be the very thing that leads him forth. This is a king, but he is not like any other king. This is a king, no doubt, but he's a king that would say, whoever wants to be first must be last. He's a king, no doubt, but he's a king that just in a few moments in the gospel story is going to get down on his knees and the very disciples who will run away from him and betray him, he is going to take their dirt caked feet and he is going to wash them. He is a king, but he is not like a king that we think of. He is a king, but he is this kind of king. As the apostle Paul would say to the church at Philippi, he is a king who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when Jesus is the king and reigning over your soul and your life, you know what? He will conform you into that kind of image. Now, it doesn't come at first. And, and, and a lot of us, we, we will rebel at the conformity that he wants to do in our mind and our soul around this place. But I want you to hear that the more that we walk with Jesus— 
The longer that we go, and even into eternity, he is going to make this king's uh, image into our image. He's going to force this upon us, and we're going to look like him. Perfect strength mixed with humility. Perfect confidence without the insecurity of prideful ambition. This is what we need to be reminded of, that Jesus has come down to die for and to conquer the pride that separates us from a holy God. He is a Savior and He is our example. He is the one who still stoops to topple the towers of pride that all of us are tempted to build. What kind of construction project do you have going on right now? in your heart, and in your soul. We all do. We all have a general contractor that is building some type of tower, and oftentimes by looking that we're neglectful of others and desperate for attention and defensive and superficial and fault finders, we see that we're building a tower to make our name known, having a platform to make our name known. And he looks at us and he says, your role, your calling is to make disciples of all nations and to point them to the name that is above every name. And that is not your name. That is not our name. That's not my name, but that is his name. So the question isn't what kind of building project that you have going on in your soul, but rather the question is what kind of demolition project is the Holy Spirit doing in your heart and in your soul? All of us have towers that we erect. And as believers, there's a Holy Spirit who desires to bring them down so that he will be lifted up.